Hello, it's Friday 15th of December. I'm Hannah Pearson. On our last show of the year, Gary Bowerman and I will round up the top 10 travel and tourism talking points from 2023. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So we're nearing the end of the first full calendar year of travel and tourism in Southeast Asia since the pandemic. And what a dramatic 12 months it's been. To take stock, Hannah and I have delved through the archives and created a list of the top 10 travel and tourism talking points from the last 12 months in Southeast Asia and beyond. Today's journey will take us from Indonesia to China via Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, and the Philippines. So Hannah, let's start right from the top. What was our number one story from the year? Well, we can't miss out the high-speed rail developments, right? Um, So Indonesia, of course, opened Southeast Asia's first high-speed rail. And we had the Laos-China Railway. Technically, yes, it opened last year, but it finally opened that cross-border to actually make it the Laos-China Railway um, in April. Yeah, I would agree. I think the, the reason we chose this as number one, I think, you know, it's, it's the biggest infrastructure development project. It's been on the cards for a long time. But, you know, in October, Indonesia became the first high-speed rail nation in Southeast Asia. They launched Wush, uh, which is the, the, the train line from Jakarta to Bandung, built and financed by Chinese engineering firms, uses Chinese tra- rail technology. Indonesia becomes, I think, only the fifth country in Asia Pacific to have high-speed rail network. China has the largest, Japan has the oldest, and the other two are South Korea and Taiwan. There will be more though. We know that, Hannah, we've been talking about that quite a lot across the year. Thailand looks as though it will be next. Um, That will probably at the moment is scheduled for 2026. And then beyond the region, India is looking at 2026 as well. But across the region in Southeast Asia, almost every week there's been a new proposal, hasn't there, about some form of high-speed rail either linking uh, directly to China or uh, uh, throughout the region. So there's going to be a lot more to to follow on this story in 2024, I would presume. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and if you're looking at how this, you know, China-Laos or Laos-China, depending on where you're sat, probably railway has has panned out. I mean, the Laos section so far, um, since its opening last year, has seen about 3.74 million passengers um, and actually reached a high of about 10,500 um, passages on the 10th of December. So the numbers are picking up there. They're adding on new trains. There's a lot of hype around these high-speed trails. Pe- people are traveling to these countries or traveling to these routes just to ride on them right now in Southeast Asia for that novelty factor. So like you said, Gary, a lot to look forward to, I think, in the next coming years when it comes to high-speed rail. Yeah, definitely. And I was in Jakarta last month and I was talking to a lot of people who'd been on Woosh and everybody was talking about it as though it was, you know, a really, really interesting thing to do. It'll become a tourism attraction. And then obviously the plan now in Indonesia is to extend it from uh, Jakarta to Bandung to the second city of Surabaya. That will take a long time because that's a long journey. I think that's about 900 kilometers. Um, but that would really open up the, the country to a, to a high speed rail network. Uh, something, I guess, as you said, Hannah, we'll be talking about in 2024. Absolutely. So moving back to where we are right now, and, and this was one of your picks, um, Gary, but it has definitely been on my mind as well. And you, you have called it Malaysia comes from nowhere. <laughs> you want to elucidate more? 
Well, I'll, 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 I'll leave you to, to talk about the statistics, Hannah, but all year we've been talking about Thailand being miles ahead of anybody else in terms of visitor arrivals, and it was. And, you know, Malaysia, I think, as we've been saying throughout the year, has been quite slow in reporting. It was only really reporting around about quarterly its arrivals figures, uh, and I think it was up to about 14 million by September. But then a couple of weeks ago, well, not even a couple of weeks ago, I think it was last week, last week you and I were messaging Hannah, there was an announcement that uh, suddenly Malaysia has jumped into the lead. Can you can you tell us more? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is, it, it, I think it's one of those stories where uh, we also have to point the finger at the media for not being a, a little bit um, more into the details about this. Um, so the immigration department, and I stress the immigration department, not the tourism department, announced that from the 1st of January to the 15th of November, 26 million foreigners had entered Malaysia. Um, so about 49% of those were Singaporeans, so about 12.6 million. There are about 3 million Indonesians, 2 million Thai, 1.4 million Chinese, and so on. And this this was really picked up everywhere. And if, wow, 26 million people have arrived into Malaysia. I've seen it going around social media, all of these charts comparing. But it's not really tourists, is it? You know, it includes all sorts of people who are crossing the borders for all sorts of purposes. And it's not strictly tourists, unfortunately, for Malaysia. You know, they have revised upwards their target. So you said, Gary, you know, January to September, they have announced they reached about 14 million. They announced a couple of weeks ago that they were revising upwards their target for this year to 19.1 million. So that probably indicates whereabouts Malaysia thinks it's going to hit in the next couple of weeks. It's, it's going to hit about 19 million. Um, so again, to put it into context for people who might not remember, 2019 tourist arrivals into Malaysia was about 26 million. So that's why <laughs> Gary and I were immediately jumping when we saw this, this announcement. Huh? 26 million foreigners have entered Malaysia so far. That's you know, it's they're going to have exceeded pre-pandemic levels. Uh, it's one of those, I think, kind of terms and conditions apply and you, you need to look beyond uh, that headline stat again. Yeah, methodology. But you're absolutely right. The, the, I think the Director General of the Malaysia uh, Tourism Promotion Board spoke at a, a conference, quite a high-profile conference, uh, about three days after these figures came out. And he qualified, as you said there, Hannah, that the, the actual target is 19.1 million tourists for the full year. Um, but you're right also that this goes viral very, very quickly. Two people from China sent me uh, a graphic uh, last week um, saying, well, how has Malaysia done this so quickly? Uh, media as well. And, you know, it's, uh, it's opened up a can of worms about methodology and counting and, and how tourism figures themselves are actually compiled, not just in Malaysia, but across the region. So I guess that's something else that we will probably be talking about a lot in 2024, Hannah. As always, right? I think we've been talking about that since the beginning of the pandemic. So <laughs> it's not going to go away for 2024. Sorry, listeners. That's true. So that brings us actually quite neatly onto uh, number three in, in our list, which is the return of visa waivers. Now, this is quite an interesting development, Hannah, because we're kind of waiting for this to happen all year and then it all happens all at once. Just as a recap, listeners will probably remember that pre-pandemic, most countries in Southeast Asia and in fact, countries across Asia Pacific offered a visa waiver, uh, particularly to arrivals from key markets like China, Indone- uh, China India, and other um, regional markets to, to boost tourism, to make it easier to arrive and also to remove the cost of the, the visa application process. That all came to a halt during pan- the, the pandemic. Most countries ended their visa waiver programs. 
but now they're starting them up again. And we were kind of expecting this to happen at the beginning of the year, but it didn't really happen until the second half of the year, Hannah did it. And, and kind of Thailand kickstarted that process. But now other countries like Malaysia, possibly Indonesia, and maybe Vietnam are also following suit. Yeah, like you said, it's like buses, isn't it? There's, <laughs> you wait for one and then three come along at lot, um, three come along at once. And um, it's been absolutely that. So I, I was trying to kind of chart the timeline earlier when I was prepping for the the podcast and there's been all sorts. So you're absolutely right. Thailand kickstarted it and we've seen that, haven't they? Thailand are the ones who start it or Singapore sometimes and then the rest of the region rushed to follow. So it was 15th September that Thailand announced they were going to have this 30-day um, visa-free access for Chinese and Kazakh travelers. The Kazakh bit's slightly less important there. Um, from the 25th of September all the way till the end of February 2024. They then announced at the end of October that they were going to extend that same um, visa-free access to Indians and Taiwanese. There was then a little pause until the end of November. And in the last couple of weeks, we've seen huge movement. So we had this visa-free access for Chinese from Thailand and everybody else is kind of humming and hawing. We, we didn't really see much action um, until the 24th of November when China announced that it would give 15-day visa-free access for Malaysians and a few other nationalities from the 1st of December. A couple of days later, Malaysia, of course, turns around and says, OK, we're going to give you a 30-day waiver, China oh, and India too, for a whole year. And then we've seen news like... Um, tourism minister for Vietnam, who's saying that they want to try and get visa waivers, but nothing specific there. We saw Singapore last week announce with China that they were looking at this mutual 30-day uh, kind of visa waiver, but they're only going to really get into the scheme early next year. China gave a 25% off visa charges for Thailand, Vietnam, and the Philippines. Indonesia last week also announced that it was looking at visa exemptions for 20 nationalities. So that includes China and India, but also key markets like Australia, US, European markets, UK. And what else have I missed? Ah, the only outlier, and this is a funny one, um, is the Philippines. Um, and so on the 1st of December, Philippines suspended its e-visa facility for Chinese tourists three months after the start of the pilot. So you've got the whole region kind of going mad for all of these visa waivers and making things easier. And then you have the Philippines who implemented this e-visa in August for China and have said, actually, we're not going to extend it, but not given the reason why. So yeah, it's it's all about the visa waivers and there's plenty of things going for the other way as well. South Korea has just added Vietnam, Philippines and Indonesia to their list of free e-visas for groups. Uh, so there's a ton, there's a ton of movement going on and it's really, I think everybody has realized that if one country makes that move, you need to make that move because you've got to stay competitive. Yeah, that's true. That's a really good point. So it has certainly we've seen throughout the year that tourism competition has really intensified throughout the region. Everybody is chasing everybody's tourists. Uh, that's one issue. Uh, as you mentioned there, Hannah, also the, the visa wave thing is, is particularly targeted at group travel, trying to uh, make it easier for groups to be able to apply for and, and, and the, reduce the cost of entering a country that obviously uh, rebounds into the airline capacity. It helps airlines plan a little bit further going forward. Most of the countries in Southeast Asia that said that they were doing this in, in the last sort of couple of months or so have done it because of the end of year tourism season, which sort of starts, well, has started now and runs through till about February or March. So the peak season. And then obviously, as part of that, you've got the Lunar New Year holiday. But I think the interesting thing that, that always amazes me about this, Hannah, is that, you know, we, 
we saw this before the pandemic. Visa waiver was a, an intrinsic part of, of travel promotion and it worked, you know, over, over the what, 2017, 2018, 2019, you could see that it was actually a positive way to attract more tourists, particularly from key markets. But the way that it's promoted right now is that, you know, governments expect this to have immediate results. You know, you, you, you launch a visa waiver today and the, the tourists will come tomorrow. And it just simply doesn't work like that. And I think we will see that across the next two or three months is that, announcing those visa waivers so late, even though tourists, you know, generally now are making quite late term decisions about travel booking windows are much shorter than before. Uh, the visa waiver issue, just simply waiving it and saying, well, now you can come. Um, I don't think it, it's going to have an immediate impact. There is definitely a lag on this. And so the benefits, I would say, will accrue through 2024. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you there. It's that, yeah, it's that, that, that belief, like, We'll open and they'll come. <laughs> we'll waive visas and they'll come. And we've just seen time and time again that belief just isn't true. So as you said, a large part of that is also down to air capacity, which probably leads us nicely to our next kind of linked topic, which is that China hasn't really measured up to those expectations that, you know, Southeast Asian governments had at the beginning of the year, has it? No, it hasn't. And uh, honestly, if, if I had, I'd, I'd ask, been asked one question the most this year is, you know, how is the Chinese recovery actually happening? And, you know, there are so many reasons why the Chinese recovery has been slower than some governments expected this year. I don't think that we expected it would be quick. Hannah, we said right from the beginning that it was going to be a very phased recovery in terms of the way China was going to allow its travelers to go around the world. It started to introduce those phase, those phases, three particular phases in terms of group travel. Um, and that impacted the way that um, airlines were planning their strategies through the year. And of course, you know, in China, domestic travel this year has been so strong and most of the airlines have retained um, most of their planes flying flying domestically. So you know, we have a couple of statistics that kind of highlight just how low international air capacity has been from China this year. So in the year to date, up to the first week of December, uh, there have been 348,000 international flights from China. Now that's down 52%. Uh, compared to 2019. But if you look at the domestic sector, there have been 4.2 million domestic flights, and that's a 5% increase compared to 2019. So across the year, you can see that the domestic activity has been so, so much stronger than international. Now, that's the, aggregate, that, that, that's the cu current year to date. But if you actually look at, at December, you can see that international capacity has increased throughout the year. So at the start of the year, outbound capacity from China was around about 13%, 1.3, where it was in the same January 2019. And that has increased incrementally across the year. And in December, according to OAG, it's around about 62%. So, you know, still it's only um, two thirds of the market. Um, and, you know, our destinations uh, have found that there just haven't been enough flights and enough tourists coming into the region loads of reasons for that, not just about the flights, the economic issues, the decision to actually buy a lot of Chinese travelers to stay in the country because they feel it's safer this year and perhaps make their overseas first trip in 2024. Let's wait and see. It's, it's very, very difficult to predict what's going to happen with China in 2024. But that capacity has increased in the last couple of months or so. And, you know, you'd expect that uh, we'll start to see probably a stronger increase through the middle of 2024. Yeah, I mean, let's hope. And it's, you know, when you you dive into those air capacity stats between China and some of the Southeast Asian countries. So again, it's OAG 
stats for December. I mean, you've got Singapore, who's at 87% of 2019 levels. So they're performing very strongly. Um, perhaps um, they're using them as a transit hub. Um, we don't know how many are actually staying in Singapore. Um, but you look at Philippines and they're down, 30, they're still at 39% of uh, 2019 levels. So, you know, there is a, a huge range of recovery between those countries. And even just Thailand, if you're looking maybe January to September, international arrivals, they're still at 29% only of those those tourism arrivals. So it is a lot slower than these countries are kind of anticipated. And we saw at the start of the year, um, the more adding on to their targets and saying, yeah, we're going to have millions of uh, Chinese tourists coming in. And towards the end of the year, they've, they've had to revise that down in a more realistic way as they've realized actually that's not quite the case. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think even if you look at, you know, some of the key neighbor markets to China, you look at Japan, you look at South Korea, you know, their, their capacity compared to 2023, 2019 is way, way down. Some of the countries are actually doing quite well. They're actually further afield. Australia is almost back to parity to where it was in December 20, 20, uh, 2019. Uh, the UK is up. Italy is up. Qatar is up. Obviously, they have smaller total capacities, but they are up compared to what they were in this time, 2019. So, you know, the actual the actual spread of where Chinese airlines are flying at the moment is quite is quite unique, and that will take a long time to to settle down. And you know, I, I would say, Hannah, when we're looking at these figures in a year's time, I still don't think we'll be looking at a similar situation to what it was in 2019. No, I don't think so. Okay, so moving from China onto our fifth top story of the year, Hannah, and this is the world's top story of the year, really. This is Taylor Swift, uh, who's the time person of the year. And this is an interesting aspect, really, is, is her exclusive concerts in Singapore, performing six concerts at the beginning of March. And as Jesper Palmqvist, Senior Director of Asia Pacific of STR CoStar, said on our podcast, I think back in September, the, her impact on, on booking hotels in Singapore was, was astonishing. By mid-July, I think 26% of Singapore's hotel capacity for that period in March had already been pre-booked. Uh, this is an astonishing story, isn't it, Hannah? This is music, tourism, and, a, and an artist at the height of her powers. Um, but it's that key, as we've discussed before, it's that key element of exclusivity in Singapore. Yeah, I mean, and talking of exclusivity, you know, Marina Bay Sands have announced that they're selling VIP um, stay, a three-night stay there for... Um, 10,000 Singapore dollars, 15,000 Singapore dollars, and 50,000 Singapore dollars. So it's uh, insane. I think the the money that some um, tourism businesses are able to to generate around this, and you know, as we've noted before, and the, the Singapore Ministry of Trade and Industry have said, they see concerts as this being this very large economic value added activity because it isn't just the spend for the concert ticket; it's everything that goes around that from buying merchandise from local um, SMEs to having a place to stay to flying in. It's just got this huge multiplier um, effect, this music tourism and, and, and Taylor Swift in particular. Like you say, she's she's really, I think, one of her kind. Is it is it that her, the ERS tour has now broken $1 billion, I think I saw the other day? Yeah, it has. And I think it's it's expected to go even higher, I think, to about $1.3 billion, the the biggest grossing tour ever in history. Uh, yeah, and also, you know, we've got Beyonce coming as well. So th- it's going to be a, a big year in 2024. Music tourism is definitely one of the big stories of, of 2023, wasn't it? And, you know, all uh, tourism boards, all governments are talking about attracting more 
uh, concerts in 2024. I would say we should look out for Singapore. I think they'll get some some bigger names as well. And we should also look out for Macau. Macau is making big, big moves on music tourism. It's focused so far quite a lot on the Asia Pacific um, stars, but uh, Bruno Mars is playing there in January. And so they're going to be competing head to head, I think, with Singapore next year. It's going to be quite an interesting competition. Mm, And you think that Macau will set up like a a Las Vegas style residencies? Do they already do that? Is that something that's in the works? They've started to do that with some of the Hong Kong stars, weekend residences mostly. But I think they're finding at the moment that one-off concerts are, or or double concerts um, are are drawing big, big numbers. You know, they've got people queuing around the blocks to, to buy tickets. So I think the residences will continue, but it, it's getting these stars in um, and, and going head to head so that they get them and, and Singapore doesn't. Uh, I think it's going to be an interesting year next year. For sure. So let's hop across then from Singapore over to Penang um, and refresh your memory on um, the story that happened way back in May. So that was Penang's ban on short term rental accommodation in residential properties. We kind of have to add that it's not a blanket ban. There can still be Airbnbs, but they've got to be in commercial properties. And we really picked this one because I think it highlights that tension that there is There's between the Airbnbs, these short stay rentals and the budget hotels and, you know, not even not only budget hotels, but just hotels in general. And there's this rivalry between them, the the uh, the constant pressure, I think, on the government in terms of more regulation, making sure that they're paying taxes, how do you ensure travellers' safety and everything else. And it'll be really fascinating to see how that plays out next year. I mean, Malaysia has said that they're looking at guidelines around it. Um, You're seeing Airbnb come out with economic stats kind of justifying their existence in markets. So in Malaysia, they've said that they, they contributed 5 billion ringgit to the Malaysian GDP in 2022. Um, They supported 57,000 jobs in 2022. So you're seeing all of this uh, kind of grandstanding, I think, if you like, from from Airbnb to kind of justify its existence, Um, I guess, in the hope that it doesn't go the way that it has in Singapore, where it's incredibly difficult to find Airbnbs for these these short stays. Yeah, absolutely. Malaysia is quite an interesting case study, but it kind of mirrors really what's happening globally. There is this real antipathy now towards the, the size and scale of the short term rental uh, major operators and also the quality, uh, the, well, the diversity of quality of experience that some people are having when they when they they book a, a room or, a, or a, an apartment uh, using one of these platforms. I think cities like Melbourne and New York have been leading this in terms of looking at new ways to actually treat or even um, impose fees on, on on operators. So it's gonna be a difficult year for for short term rentals. I think we're going to see more cities around the world using this as a measure to try and cut down on over tourism and also to support um you know the 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 hotel industry itself i reckon in a year's time hannah we may be talking about more cities introducing bands let's watch that space so another of our key picks is this this kind of trend that we've seen towards the the second half of the year i would say about some key leisure destinations across the region struggling to kind of pick up so we know we're talking destinations like langkawi we're talking destinations like boracay in the philippines like fukot in the in vietnam who all quite recently have all been complaining about just struggling to get occupancy not really seeing tourists coming in not really seeing international flights coming in um, and that kind of holding holding them back and I guess feeling a little bit left out when it comes to that recovery, which is super interesting because these were destinations that 
during the pandemic, of course, were super popular with domestic tourists. Um, but I do wonder, you know, as borders have reopened, that you know these these tried and and tested destinations are kind of lagging behind popularity. People wanting to have that novelty factor. What do you think? Yeah, it is an interesting aspect. I, I did a, a radio interview in Malaysia yesterday about Langkawi. And I think one of the points about Langkawi is it's just stood still. It hasn't evolved. It hasn't moved forward at all. And you can compare that uh, in Malaysian terms to to Penang, which has a lot of energy, a lot of vibrancy. There's a lot of new hotels, bars, cafes, restaurants. You know, Penang really feels like it's moving forward. Langkawi has simply stood still. Um, and as you said, Hannah, it was popular during uh, the pandemic. But since then, you know, people have uh, decided to go elsewhere. Prices have risen. And as we've discussed, Han, you know, was it nearly four million uh, Malaysians have gone across the border just north of there to Thailand this year? And, you know, that doesn't speak well for Langkawi. Phuket has had a lot of bad press, hasn't it, in terms of overdevelopment and that this, the type of development and, and the environmental impact. Um, Boracay, you know, that's still really struggled to recover from when it was closed. What was that a few years ago now? But I think it really shows that the, the destinations in our region that really move forward, that really re-energize, get new experiences, new restaurants, new new diners like Phuket, like Bali, you know, they will always stay strong because, it, you know, tourism is high pop music. You have to keep reinventing yourself. Uh, and if you don't, you know, the, people speak, people have choices. Once again, it's not like in the pandemic times where you are very, very constrained where you can go. Uh, people now want the very, very best for their holidays and they want to go to the destinations that give them the most choice. I I agree with that. I think spot on. So let's move on to uh, the other topic. And again, this is a kind of Q3, Q4 story, really, which is um, airlines launching and failing. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, of course, we're thinking in particular of two airlines here, um, my airline in Malaysia. So it didn't launch this year. Let's, you know, give it its due. It, it launched 1st of December, 2022. But as we, you know, we covered a couple of months ago, on 12th of October, it suddenly announced it would suspend all of its flights on that very same day, um, impacting about 125,000 people. It's since had its license suspended. Some of those planes that they did have have now been, had their lease taken over by AirAsia. Complaints about salaries allegedly being unpaid. And I think what it ultimately will lead to in Malaysia, you know, we talked about this being very inevitable, right? That the market is not big enough to have so many airlines. But what happened afterwards is that there was a lot of questions really to the civil aviation authorities and to the government asking how could an airline who didn't really have the financial means, you know, at the end of it, how could they continue? How could they have their license renewed and, and everything else? So I think as the outcome, there's definitely going to be a lot more regulations and scrutiny, uh, particularly for newcomers, which will be interesting to see how that impacts the market later on. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point, Hannah, isn't it? And we, we did a story, I think it was a couple of podcasts ago about Thailand saying it has, was it nine new airlines that are hoping to launch there? I mean, some of those aren't uh, scheduled airlines, some of those are private jet airlines and helicopter airlines, that kind of thing, but nine new airlines. I was actually reading a very interesting analysis by Mayor Patel from OAG two or three days ago, and he was looking at the costs and the um, competition impacts on airlines for next year. And he's saying that he thinks 2024 is going to be a tough year for airlines in the region. You know, their cost margins are going to be compressed a lot, lot more. You know, that honeymoon period that they've enjoyed for the last 18 months or so is kind of over now. A lot of competition and that's really going to hurt those airlines that don't have the funding 
or don't have, as you said, Hannah, you know, that business model that enables them to get through, you know, the next three to five years. So interesting years ahead, I think, Hannah, and, you know, the, the my airline was very much a salutary story, not just for Malaysia, but for for the region itself. Uh, I think we've we've gone into those reasons of, of why it failed, but it's uh, it's impacted the market, an oversaturated market, as, as, as you said. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think we'll be seeing too many new launches next year, do you? Definitely not in Malaysia. And even in Vietnam, of course, Bamboo Airways went through this huge, um, what they called the most extensive restructuring ever in Vietnamese aviation history. Because, yeah, I think they, they overexpanded to international routes and they couldn't um, keep that up, essentially. So it's not just a Malaysia story. It's a, it's a regional story. And like you said, with all those airlines coming on in Thailand, I would, if I were them, be be pretty nervous and looking at these other airlines and um, wondering what lessons I could learn from them before I launch. Yeah, definitely. So that's uh, that's an issue we'll be definitely watching very, very closely over 2024. That's airline economics. So moving on to number nine, Hannah, this is an interesting one. This is one of your picks. And this is the expansion of cross-border QR payments, increasing connectivity issues such as Alipay Plus. Payments are right at the center of the, the travel and tourism industry more than ever before, particularly digital payments. Uh, and this is something that has developed across the year, hasn't it, Hannah? We've been talking about it quite a lot. And we're going to see much, much more change again in 2024. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've we've seen every week, I seem to see a new announcement about a new country pair that has enabled, uh, you know, cross, cross-border QR code payments. So we've got Thailand, Hong Kong was last week. There was Indonesia, Singapore a couple of months ago, Cambodia, Vietnam. Everybody's plugging into the Alipay Plus ecosystem because they want a piece of the Chinese market, but also just because they know by plugging into that, that allows them the access across all of the other markets as well. Yeah, just really using that. I think what is interesting is that they're all using that with the aim of making travelers' lives easier. Often when they announce that they're doing these payments, it's with that in mind specifically um, around travelers rather than for other purposes, you know, like MSMEs transferring money across to one another. Um, so it's, it's very interesting. And definitely only going to hot up for next year yeah i think you you hit a, a really important point there hannah is you know it's not just about travel it's not just about consumers you know these these bilateral or multilateral agreements such as between singapore and indonesia singapore and malaysia they don't just enable uh, travelers or consumers to make payments they also make the small businesses the parts of the travel chain you know it makes it much much easier uh, for suppliers and that kind of thing to get paid more quickly um, so that you know that should speed up processing efficiency across the whole industry. That's something I guess that everybody will be looking for uh, through 2024. Absolutely. And our last one is, I suppose, a look back right to the beginning of the year and to really appreciate, I think, how how far we've come in terms of rolling back those last remnants of, of COVID-19 requirements. So at the beginning of the year, I was was checking my weekly report. The first week of January, I still had Singapore. We're still in the transition phase to resilience. We only had it in July where Malaysia removed its face mask rule for public transport. It was only in July that Indonesia was going to lift its national emergency status. But, you know, I've I've got a little bit of a feeling of deja vu, actually reading some of the headlines um, this week with these growing COVID cases, Articles from the government here in Malaysia suggesting that people should go around wearing face masks again, uh, respiratory illnesses in China. Are we going back to where we started, Gary? 
It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. I, I flew out of KLIA a week ago, last uh, last Tuesday night, and you see the digital billboards have the signs up again saying that you should wear masks in the airport and on, on flight. More Asian travelers in particular were wearing masks at the airport than I'd seen for, well, certainly a couple of years. Um, most non-Asian uh, travelers weren't. But yes, you know, there are concerns about these cases of pneumonia in China, pneumonia also in Indonesia, the return of COVID absolutely everywhere. And the irony of ironies, Hannah, I arrived back in the UK a week ago and promptly caught COVID. So it's still everywhere. It's how we're dealing with it. And, you know, I'm in the UK at the moment. And there's an actually an inquiry going on into the political management of the COVID outbreaks, what, in 2020, 2021. So those issues are still around. You know, COVID is not going away. But yeah, what happens next? Do do governments have to, you know, roll back and, and start to enforce more uh, regulations? Will we start to see man mask mandates come back during the winter? I, I guess it's hard to say, but, um, you know, that those institutional elements of COVID control have gone. I, I'm not sure that governments will be able to do much more than to, to, to mandate masks. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, I, I, I hope in my heart and I, I don't think we are going to see, you know, that, that knee-jerk reaction that we saw back in um, 2020. But yeah, increasingly, I think masks might be a slightly more common feature, again, in Southeast Asia. And uh, certainly when I travel next week, <laughs> I might be masking up at the airport, Gary, after hearing your, <laughs> your tale of traveling and catching COVID. Uh, I don't want COVID for Christmas. Thank you very much. No, it's not pleasant. So that brings the show to a close for this week and for 2023. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. And as always, don't forget to send us your thoughts on comments and anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yep. And as always, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue. We've got four years worth of podcasts on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And you can find us on any international podcast platform. So that's a wrap for today, but we'll be back in January to talk more Southeast Asian travel and tourism with you then. Yeah, and that just leaves for us to wish a very, very happy holidays and happy Christmas to all our listeners around the world. And we look forward to reconnecting with you all early in 2024.
Can you hear me now? Yes. 